Welcome, everybody, into Down the Line, the tennis show for you on Blaze Radio. I'm your host, Carson Breber, and we've done enough talking here about how the coronavirus has basically impacted so many legacies by shutting down tennis for this year and is an all-around bummer. So instead of focusing on the dim present, let's look back to a brilliant past. So today we're going to do just that. Uh, I'm a big sports history guy. I host a sports history podcast on uh, the NBA and NFL called Nerd Sesh, and I've loved sports history since I was a kid. I used to read through my Bud Collins Encyclopedia of Tennis. I had another one from even before that that I think was called the Ultimate History of Tennis or something like that. So today we're going to be discussing the 10 greatest seasons of the open era. And we're going to have to limit it to the open era despite temptation to go further because I want to acknowledge Budge in 38 with his Grand Slam. I want to acknowledge Laver in 62, any number of Tilden seasons. You could maybe argue a Rosewall season from before he turned pro. There's a bunch to choose from, but at the end of the day, the exact statistics from back then are a little bit more spotty outside of slams. It's not clear exactly how every match went down. And also then that's just an overwhelming sample size and so many great seasons are going to get left out because as is with 10, we are leaving out some signature all-time seasons, some seasons with 90 plus percent winning, three slams, and you know, we'll see if there's a little controversy around that. But let's start with number 10, where I have Bjorn Borg from the 1978 season. And to me, Borg has to be one of the five greatest tennis players of all time. I'd say he's fifth because he doesn't have the longevity of the current big three. He doesn't have perhaps the longevity either of Rod Laver, who, although he didn't play in the pros for a six-year chunk of his career, had an incredibly long career when you consider that pro success. Borg was as brilliant as any of them when he was at his absolute best. This is a guy that was legitimately unstoppable, and 78 is maybe you could argue the start of that three-year stretch when he's truly at his peak. And let me just say, this is not going to be the first or this is not going to be the last time that Borg is on this list. So in 78, he went 79 and seven with a 91.8% winning percentage, won nine titles, had one runner up and won two slams. That being the French open and Wimbledon didn't play the Australian, which is something that I had to consider a lot when considering the greatness of these seasons is how much does it matter for guys that didn't win the Australian because they didn't play the Australian. Ultimately, I tried to strike a balance because you can't really discredit all of these old seasons just because, you know, Federer was playing the Australian and kept winning the Australian. So Borg was pretty insanely dominant this season. He was 21 and 2 versus top 10 opponents, which is an exceptional mark. 2 and 1 versus Connors, 0 and 1 versus McEnroe, who was really just breaking into the top 10. 1 and 0 versus Velos and 5 and 0 versus Gerolitis. And of course, probably the most significant thing from the season is his 49 match win streak which is the longest ever and all took place within the 1978 season there is a big asterisk by this because there were two walkovers but at the same time if you're legitimately injured and you can't play you know i don't think that that should necessarily be held against you for some other indications of how insanely dominant he was in the french open he did not lose a set 16 of the 21 sets that he won were by 6-2 or less and he beat Vilas, one of the all-time great clay quarters 1-1-3 in the final and Vilas was coming off of an all-time season of his own in which he had the third longest win streak ever and won two slams and that season narrowly missed this list in fact he had 16 titles which is the second most of all time it's an unbelievable season and Borg decimated him on his best surface 
surface because, of course, Borg at his best on clay was like Rafa. I mean, he just didn't lose. Then in Wimbledon, beats Connors 2-2-3 and in the final, and the U.S. Open is the only slam that he does not win, and he still reaches the final. He lost to Connors, and he beat three top 10 opponents on the way in Harold Solomon, Raul Ramirez, and Vitas Gerolaitis. So when you look at the absolute dominance versus his elite contemporaries, with the exception of McEnroe, who he only played once, This is an all-time great season, and I don't think it's always remembered as one of those because it doesn't have the three-slam pedigree, which, again, it's just a shame that these guys didn't play the Australian because it would make lists like this so much easier, but maybe a little bit less fun. So that's the first Borg season. It will not be the last. At number nine, we have 2005 Roger Federer, and this is not going to be the last Federer season ever. But let me explain why I have this so low, because I think that some people, when they think of this season, they think 81 and four, which was a 95.3 winning percentage from Federer, a part of a ridiculous four-year stretch from 2004 to 2007, in which he won 11 slams, had four all-time great seasons that were all seriously considered for this list, 11 titles, uh, two slams, won four masters, 1000s. But the reason that this is so low, and I'll say it, the reason I do not have Federer's 2004 season on this list, despite the fact that he won three slams and the 2007 uh, season isn't on this list either for different reasons though, because he was really pretty inconsistent outside the slams. We'll get to that in the honorable mentions, but he achieved this in the worst era in tennis history. And I do not say that lightly. From 1999 to 2005, that's the worst era in tennis history. That's when you have guys like Kafelnikov and Moya and Rios. These are the guys contending for the number one ranking. Juan Carlos Ferrero, Leighton Hewitt, Andy Roddick finishing a year as world number one. I'm sorry. Roddick was a very good player, but he was really destined to be a borderline top five guy. That's what his ceiling was supposed to be. And he was the number one player in tennis. Hewitt sort of running the game for a couple years. I mean, it was just a miserable, miserable era. And I think this is why I've said previously that I think that Federer's longevity is as much a factor in his argument for greatest of all time as his four-year stretch where he went absolutely berserk. 2007 is a bit different because then the competition was really picking up and that's a great season from him. But again, he was a little bit weaker outside of the slams. But it's just tough to evaluate these when you compare it to like a Djokovic season from the past decade where he's playing in the toughest era of tennis ever. So Federer, though, absolutely dominant against the competition. 15-2 and versus the top 10. But here is the year-end top 10. Rafa Nadal, who he was 1-1 and against, then Roddick, Hewitt, Davidenko, 35-year-old Agassi, Coria, Lubacic, and Gaudio. That's just not a high-quality top 10, and I think that everyone's aware of that. But if you look at how he competed in the slams, U.S. Open beat Hewitt and Agassi in the semis in the final. That's pretty good. Wimbledon lost one set all tournament. That's incredible. Beat Hewitt and Roddick in straights in the semis and finals. And then this is where I guess you make the argument against it because he only made those two finals as far as slams. Lost the semis in the French to Rafa, lost the semis in the Australian to Saf in 9-7 in the fifth. I still think that this is stronger than the 2004 season because the the tennis world was even weaker then. And yes, he won three slams, but he lost third round of the French and he had some bad losses that I think disqualify him even despite the extra major. And compared to 2007, he was 68 and nine overall. He had losses to, he lost twice to Guillermo Cañas. So it's tough to leave off that 2007 season because he made all four slam finals. He won three. He did it in what was becoming a good era of tennis, but the bad losses... I just think if I have to pick from those three, which I think felt right because I didn't want to leave 78 Borg off, although I did think about it, this is the one to me that stands out even though he won one less slam. So 81 and four, 
I mean, <laughs> that's really where this argument stands out. 81 and four. That's tough to leave off this list. It's one of the five greatest seasons ever by winning percentage. At number eight on this list, I have Borg from the 1980 season. And I think the 1980 may be the signature Borg in most people's mind. I don't think that it was necessarily peak Borg. It was, I guess I shouldn't say that. It was part of a stretch in which Borg was equally dominant from 78 through 80. But this is remembered, of course, because it's when McEnroe really rises as his peer. Not just a challenger, but a guy who is on his level. And of course, they have the Wimbledon final, which many would say is the greatest match ever. As far as Borg's stats, he was 70 and 6. That's a 92.1% winning percentage, nine titles, and three runners up. Dominant versus the top 10. And this is an incredible number considering the era. 19 and 5, 3 and 1 versus McEnroe, 2 and 0 versus Connors, 2 and 1 versus Velas, 4 and 0 versus Gerolitis. Poor Gerolitis was getting beat a lot by Borg back in these days, and McEnroe and Connors. It's a tough era for him. But he won the Masters, which was, of course, the year end finals, beating McEnroe, Connors, and Lendl all of them on hard, which is pretty impressive. And if you look at his performance in the slams in the U.S. Open, beat Yannick Noah, Roscoe Tanner, Johan Creek, and then lost in five to McEnroe in the finals. That was the only thing that kept him, again, from winning all three slams that he played. And he came so close to winning all three, both this time and in 78, which, you know, you think if he won, if he, if he played the Australian, could have been that close to a slam, but obviously didn't end up winning the U.S. Open either way this year. Wimbledon, Beat Gene Meyer, Brian Gottfried, and McEnroe. Obviously, McEnroe, that being the famous final. And the French beat Harold Solomon and Vitas Gerolitis. And again, didn't lose a set and was pushed to 6-4 twice in the entire tournament. I know that we talk about how dominant Rafa is, and he's only lost twice at the French Open. So this is not going to be an anti-Rafa thing. But I think when you consider that Borg won six of the seven French Opens, he Played in starting in 74, 73, he was still a young buck and was coming up. I mean, he was really on that level of dominance. And of course, five straight Wimbledons made all three slam finals that he played in in three of the last four years of his career. The dude was just, he was just a freak. He was so dominant when he was playing. So that's basically the case for Borg. Uh, The reason that I have this higher than 78 is because the era is up a notch and he came so close to beating McEnroe in the U.S. Open final and therefore having a perfect slam season, pushing him to five, whereas Connors handled him pretty easily in 78. There's a case for 78, I suppose, is the overall stronger season because of the 49 straight wins that dominates versus the top 10, but same number of titles, same number of slams, slightly higher winning percentage in this season, and he came just a little bit closer to actually completing not a grand slam, but winning every slam match that he was in, pulling a Connors 74, as we'll call it. At number seven, Another Bjorn Borg season. This will be the last one on this list, but it's Borg in 79. And I'd be interested in learning how most people would rank these three Borg seasons. I have this one highest, even though it's the only one in which he didn't reach all of the slam finals that he played in, but he was 84 and six overall, a 93.3% winning percentage, 13 titles, which is one of the highest marks ever in a career high and one runner up. He was 20 and three versus the top 10, four and two versus McEnroe, six and oh versus Connors, two and oh versus Vilas. And again, 4-0 versus Gerolitis. That level of dominance in this era of tennis, when you were talking about all-time competition, that's something else. If you look at how he performed in the slams, in the French, ridiculously dominant again, beat Gerolitis 2-1 in love in the semis, and then beat Victor Pecci in the final. In Wimbledon, beat world number one, then world number one, Jimmy Connors 2-3-2. and in the semis and then beat Roscoe Tanner in the final and the U S open loss in the quarters to Tanner. So 
That is the argument against this being the highest ranked of the Borg season that he didn't make all the finals. I just think I'm not going to hold that against him entirely because I think you have to look at the year in its totality in the 13 titles, 84 and six record, a 25 match win streak in two other 15 match win streaks. And also just a little footnote here. One of his losses was by retirement to Elliot Telcher when he was up 4-1. So that's a legitimate injury. So maybe five legit losses if you want to look at it that way. It's an all-time great season, and I think it absolutely has to be here when you consider the era. Number six, I have Roger Federer in 2006. This is the Federer season. Some people will point to 2009 as sort of the signature year. He made all four slam finals again, which is remarkable. Obviously got over the hump, won the French Open, beat Roddick 16-14 in Wimbledon, and that's an incredible season. I think it's his fifth best as far as actual performance on the tennis court overall. This is the one, 92-5, and a 94.8% winning percentage, 12 titles, which includes four Masters, the year-end finals, and three slams, two and four versus Nadal on the year, which is sort of an interesting fact because it makes you think, okay, so no bad losses for the entire year, but also his main competition kind of handled him. So it's an interesting complication there. His only other loss was to Andy Murray, who was on the rise, but obviously a very promising talent. 19-4 and four versus the top 10, and he ended the year on a 29-match win streak. And if you look at how he went through the slams in the Australian semis and final, again, this is still a very shaky era of tennis. I don't think that we should act like everything changed from 2005 to 2006. The top 10 this year was Davidenko, besides Rafa, was Davidenko, Blake, Lubacic, Roddick, Robredo, Nalbandian, Ancic, and Fernando Gonzalez. I mean, that might be the worst of the bunch. Davidenko is world number three. Davidenko, Blake, Lubacic, and being in your top five. Robredo and Ancic in the top 10. It's a very weak era of tennis still because Djokovic and Murray are just about to come up really the next season, but still dominant. If you look at his path through the slams in the Australian semis and finals, beat world number 25, Nicholas Kiefer, and world number 54, Marcos Bagdadis. That's about as easy as it gets. In the French, made the finals, lost to Rafa. Can't hold that against him. Wimbledon semis and finals, played number 59, Jonas Bjorkman, in the semis, and then played Nadal. Because again, this is just an era where there aren't four dominant players. There's two really great players. And even Rafa was still solidifying his game outside of clay at this point. He wasn't absolutely dominant and perennially contending outside of the French at this point, although obviously he did reach the Wimbledon finals this season. And then in the U.S. Open, Fed beat Blake, Davidenko, and then Roddick. So... That's a moderately difficult path, I guess. But again, here's the complication. He only really lost to elite competition, but the only elite competition in an all-time sense that he had this year was Nadal. You could argue maybe Roddick, but the rest of the top five from this year is a joke. And Nadal won four of their six meetings. So I'm not going to hold that against him because I think that it's better to lose to the second best player in the world four times than it is to have bad losses like he did. Even had a couple in 2004, had a few in 2007. But it's worth noting that, I mean, yes, he's the top dog of this season, but to have a losing record to anyone is a little bit strange when you're looking at a 92-5 and win-loss record. And again, the rest of tennis was not in a great era yet. But to give credit to what was a great season in a great era, at number five, I have 2015 Novak Djokovic. I think you would be incredibly hard-pressed to make a convincing argument for any of the Federer seasons over Djokovic because... Sorry if I don't think it's all that relevant that he won, you know, one to two percent more of his matches when you consider the fact that Djokovic still got the three slams, is winning basically the same number of titles, and is doing it 
in the greatest era of tennis ever. Djokovic this season was 82-6, and six, a 93.2% winning percentage, 11 titles, four runners-up, reached his last 15 finals of the season after opening the season with a quarterfinal loss in Doha. He was 31-5 and five versus the top 10, which is the all-time record for top 10 victories, and second most is 24. He faced Federer, Nadal, or Murray in every single tournament he played but Doha, where again, I mean, who cares? That was a throwaway to start the season. A record six Masters 1000 titles and the year-end tournament and three Grand Slams. I mean, this resume right there sounds like it's, you know, maybe the greatest season ever. 4-0 versus Nadal, 5-3 versus Federer, 6-1 versus Murray, 3-1 versus Wawrinka. And boy, was he close to getting the Grand Slam. And of course, also, he ends up getting the Nole Slam after the season because then he goes and wins the Australian and the French in 2016. So you could argue this is peak Djokovic. I'll get into how I distinguished between the two Djokovic seasons in a moment, but looking at his path to dominance in the Australian, beat Milos in the quarters, then Stan in the semis, then Murray in the finals in four, in the French, beat Gasquet, beat Rafa in three sets in the quarters. Three sets. That is one of Rafa's only two losses ever at the French. Then he beat Murray, and then he lost to Stan Wawrinka. And of course, Stan is the bane of Djokovic's existence in a lot of ways. This could be the greatest season ever. It really could if he wins the French, because to pull off the Grand Slam, and then he's 83-5 and five on the year, which is a, a heck of a lot better than Laver's overall record. I don't know. That's a big what-if in history. But then Wimbledon beat Anderson from down two sets to love, one of the famous comebacks of here of his career, beat Chilich and Gasquet both in straights, and then beat Fed in four in the finals. And in the U.S. Open beat Seppi, Bautista, Gut, Lopez, then Chilich 0-1-2 in the semis, and then took out Fed in four. Just compare those routes to what Fed had to go through in, say, 2004, 2005. He had to beat Fed, Fed, Nadal, Murray, Vavrinka, most of those guys multiple times. It's just an incredible era of tennis. And for him to do what he did, when you talk about setting the record for top 10 wins, setting the record for Masters 1000 titles, winning three slams, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I don't think it's the top Djokovic season ever. And I think that I'm in a minority in this opinion, which I find unthinkable. My number four season of all time is 2011 Djokovic. Djokovic was 70 and six this year, 92.1% winning, not quite as high as the 2015 season when he was 82 and six, 10 titles, which is one less, one runner up, three slams, a then record five masters, but then he broke that record. Here's why, despite those apparent statistical disadvantages, this is the better season. He started the year 57 and one, and then he got hurt. So I don't care that his winning percentage slipped a little because he won everything that really matters. And I will not hold it against him that he got hurt when he was in the midst of what really could have been the greatest season ever. You start 57 and one, you win the first three slams of the year. You are in hallowed ground, my friend, even up a level. And through the U.S. Open, he was 64 and two which includes a mid-match retirement in Cincinnati versus Murray, which is a loss that you can chalk up to injury. So to me, his last five losses of the year, you attribute to injury because then retires mid-match versus Del Potro. So that's his two of his three losses were by retirement. Then he withdraws from Beijing and Shanghai, two tournaments where he's typically dominant, then loses to Nishikori in Basel, again, impacted by injury, withdraws from Paris, loses to Ferrer, in London, who he beat the next 10 times they played. And this was on indoor hard. He lost three and one to David Ferrer. 
if you're going to look me in the face and say that Djokovic wasn't injured, which I don't think anyone would say because it's well documented that he was injured, and then lost to Tipsarevich, who obviously he would dominate under normal circumstances as well. So the way I see it, he basically had one legit loss. I guess maybe you could argue Cincinnati because then he came back and won the U.S. Open, but when you retire, you're hurt. And that's legitimate to me. So looking at how he played against the other Titans of this era, 6-0 versus Nadal, 4-1 versus Federer, 2-1 versus Murray, which includes his retirement loss. So he was 2-0 except for that retirement. He was 21-4 versus the top 10, which includes those two bogus losses to Tipsarevich and Ferrer. And again, no one in their right mind thinks that he would have lost those matches. And when you look at his route through the slams, in the Australian, he lost one set in the entire tournament, beat Burdick in straights in the quarters, Federer in straights in the semis, and then Murray in straights in the final. And then, of course, I guess I didn't mention technically that he started the year 41-0, and beats Federer in the Dubai finals, beats Federer and Nadal in Indian Wells, beats Nadal in Miami. And this, Nadal has said that this is the highest level of tennis he's ever seen anyone play. Then he beat Nadal again in Madrid. It was ridiculous dominance. Beat Nadal again in Rome. Consider what's happening here. This is... This is the clay court swing and he's dominating Nadal. He's beating him in straight sets in these finals. And then, of course, suffers his first loss at the French Open in the semis to Roger Federer, which ends the perfect season. But then Wimbledon beats Rafa again in four, which was pretty convincing. And then the U.S. Open beats Rafa in four after beating Fed, of course, in that incredible final. Of course, after that incredible semi against Federer where he saved match points for the second straight U.S. Open semifinal, which is maybe the greatest win of his career. It's certainly right up there. You could argue the 2010 U.S. Open semi versus Federer. You could argue last year's Wimbledon final, but an incredible demonstration of grit and just winning instincts from Djokovic. So it's just about the competition. It's about the competition and the fact that he was 57 and one. I'll say it 57 and one. If you want to say 64 and two is the barrier where the injuries really play a factor, that's fine because if he won the U S open, I guess he couldn't have been in that terrible of sorts, but then he got hurt. And to me, I remember being concerned in the moment, even as a 10-year-old kid, but because, you know, I'm always concerned about protecting the legacies of these guys and the truth of the moment, I remember being like, man, the winning percentage slipped just a little bit, and I hope people don't forget how incredible this season was because, to me, I just don't really care that he lost those last few matches when he was hurt. And the raw numbers may not quite stack up because he missed some of those tournaments like Paris and Shanghai and Beijing. I just don't think it matters all that much. Maybe it's the separator between him and the top three seasons of all time because they have that level of dominance and they didn't have those injury concerns. But besides that, I think it's the greatest of the bunch. Let's move into the top three. At number three, I have John McEnroe from 1984. This was incredibly tough to rank. I considered putting this at number two and I had it at number two for a while, but I had to move it back, unfortunately, because he only won two slams. And at the end of the day, that is the tiebreaker between this and the, the season I have one above it. But the fact that McEnroe was capable of this is absolutely unbelievable. And he dropped off dramatically after this. This was really his last great season. This was his fourth straight season as world number one. You're thinking he's on track to be truly one of the all-time greats. And then, of course, he's practically done with his peak by... 26 years old. This is it for McEnroe. But this season, he was 82-3, and a 96.5% winning percentage, which is the best ever. 13 titles, which included the year-end title. Two slams, made the finals of every tournament he played in but Cincinnati, where he lost in the first round to world number 70, VJ Armitage. So you get one of those when you're 
82 and three overall started 42 and 0, which is one match better than Djokovic 2011 start for the best ever. He was 66 and one on carpet, hard and grass combined. Unbelievable. And of course he didn't play the Australian open, which is just disappointing for legacies purposes, because I can't imagine he wouldn't have won it because he was on another level this season in the French open, which obviously was a tournament of great difficulty for McEnroe. He never won it. He lost one set before the final. He beat Jimmy Connors in straight sets en route to the final and then was up two sets to love on Lendl before probably the most crushing loss of his career, if not definitely, I guess you could argue 1980 Wimbledon, but he knew that he would be back and he never got back to this situation in the French. To be that close and that dominant on clay, to lose one set before the final, to be a set away from winning the entire tournament with only losing one set up two sets to love on Lendl. Uh, this was just a different beast for McEnroe. And I love seeing when certain guys are just in that mode where they're destroying people on every surface, where Djokovic is beating Rafa in straight sets on clay, where Borg doesn't lose a set in the French. Because guys just have years like that where there's just something special. And it's not just that they're winning every match. It's that they're dominating people. And then Wimbledon, he did it again. He was at that level. Lost one set in the first round, then beat Connors 1-1-2 in, in the finals. Jimmy Connors, older Jimmy Connors, but still Connors had won slams in 82 and 83, just demolished him. U.S. Open beat Young Edberg, beat Connors, and then beat Lendl 3-4-1 and one in the final. The only person to take a set off of him was Connors, who took two sets off of him in the semis. So in summation, the dude lost one set, one set, and two set leading up to the finals of the three slams that he played, and he really, really, really could have won the French. 24-2 and two versus the top 10, which is the second most top 10 wins ever, and versus the rest of the top four. 6-1 and one versus Lendl, 6-0 and oh versus Connors, and 3-0 and oh versus Vlander. And when I read those numbers out loud, I really think that there's a legitimate case for this being the greatest season, uh, not the greatest season ever, excuse me, the second greatest season ever. Although there is a case for it to be the greatest season ever. You could make that. Um, for me, there's a certain separation between one season and the rest, which I think some of you may be able to guess. But this is a peak level of tennis that is really at the level of the highest of all time. And the fact that McEnroe was capable of this, even though he only had seven slams, even though he was basically done with his best tennis by 26, I, it's disappointing that he wasn't able to sustain the success because he could have really gone down as one of the five, six greatest players ever. He could have, if he kept it going for another year or two, he could have at least had a Borg type deal where he was absolutely dominant for five years and that's it. Although he never quite had that Borg level of dominance outside of this season. Let's move into the top two. 1974 Jimmy Connors is my number two season and he was 95 and four this year, a 96% winning percentage, which is the second best of all time, three slams, 15 titles, which is tied for the third most ever. And he didn't lose a match in a slam because he didn't play the French open 20 and 0 in grand slam matches, which of course makes him the only man to accomplish uh, a season of slams without a loss in the open era besides Rod Laver, who of course won all four. And if you, you haven't figured it out already is the number one on this list. Connors had a bit of a strange route this year because the top, the top guys didn't play each other all that much. It was a lot of small tournaments and, you know, sometimes you Connors would face like the same group of guys in three or four straight tournaments because they were in the same region, but he was incredible in the slams seven and one versus the top 10, a very small number, but you can't criticize only one loss. The Australian winning that was a bit 
I don't know if it's the most significant thing. His highest ranked opponent until the semis was the world number 90. Then he beat number 29, John Alexander, who would improve and become a top 10 player later. And number 49, Phil Dent in the finals. So that's not the biggest deal. And again, he played a lot of low ranked guys this year. He was 40 and 0 versus players ranked 85 or lower. And he won three titles without facing a top 100 opponent. So that's why I initially had the McEnroe season higher because McEnroe didn't have that kind of luck. I mean, he had to play and beat the top guys consistently. Six wins over Lendl, six wins over Connors. But then again, the fact that he didn't lose a match in a Grand Slam is pretty insane. And he lost two games to Rosewall in the U.S. Open final and six to Rosewall in the Wimbledon final. So if you're not convinced of his dominance by that, I don't know what could convince you. This was 21-year-old Jimmy Connors. This was his ascent to really all-time great status. And then he would finish as world number one for five straight seasons starting with this year. But this was really the deciding factor for me. Yes, the fact that he had three slams versus McEnroe's two, but when you look at the competition between the Wimbledon between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, that to me makes up for the fact that he didn't that he didn't play great guys for much of the season. Because if you look at his wins between the two tournaments versus opponents who were top ten within a couple years of this, Adriano Panata, Jan Kodesh twice, Dick Stockton, John Alexander, Alex Metrovelli, Roscoe Tanner, and Rosewall twice, and then three more people, three more people that were in the top twenty at some point: Jaime Filo Senior, Phil Dent, and Jeff Boroviak. So he was very, very dominant, and he was only pushed to five sets twice across the two tournaments and on the season he was one and over versus Nastasi, Borgarantes and Auker so didn't necessarily play them all that much but you can't complain if he doesn't lose I would certainly hear an argument for John McEnroe above this but it's tough for me to put it much it's tough for me to put this season much lower than that because of just the historical dominance but number one will always be in a class of its own in my opinion it was not the strongest all-around season it's the lowest winning percentage on this list by far but it's 1969 Rod Laver. Laver was 106 and 16 this season, an 86.8% winning percentage. Everyone else on this list is above 90. But he also won the most titles ever with 18 and the Grand Slam. And his road to the slam was not easy. He had to beat great players in a very deep era. And at every slam, he had to beat four historically relevant players. So I'm going to read out all those names. And everyone except those who I note are Grand Slam champions. The Australian beat Emerson, Stoli, Tony Roche, and Andres Jimeno. French Open beat Stan Smith, Jimeno, Auker, who never won a slam, was only a slam finalist, but was a perennial top 10 guy, and Ken Rosewall. Wimbledon, Smith, Drysdale, only a slam finalist, but a top tier guy, Arthur Ashe and John Newcomb, and the U.S. Open, Ralston, only a slam finalist, Emerson, Ash, and Roche. It's not just that he completed the Grand Slam. He did it in a really good era of tennis, a very deep era of tennis. When you have the pros and the amateurs coming together and convening and guys that won slams in the past couple of years and guys like him and Rosewall who had hadn't won slams in the better part of a decade because of, of course, the demand of amateur status to play in the majors. But when you do that in slams and you play over 120 matches, I'll give you a pass on a few more losses throughout the season because the Grand Slam is the ultimate in tennis. That is the objective, is to win every Grand Slam. And it's something that no one has done in the 50-plus years since as we have seen some of the greatest players in tennis pass through, guys that have won three slams in a season like Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. They've all done it, but none of them have been able to achieve the four. And 
it's the ultimate season in tennis. And I, I would just feel a little bit foolish if I said anything else. Yes, 74 Connors is incredibly distinctive. Yes, 84 McEnroe, both of the Djokovic seasons. But the man won all four Grand Slams. That's what it comes down to. So let's look at the honorable mentions because, as I mentioned, this was a tough list to make, and I had to leave off some great seasons. 2007 Federer, it came down to this. He made all four slam finals, which is historic, but he would have had the least titles of any season on this list, the lowest winning percentage besides Laver by a good bit at just 88%, and he doesn't get that same exception of winning all four grand slams, had the most bad losses. And then the argument over, let's say, 78 Borg is just that he won the Australian, and then what are the chances that Borg wouldn't have when Borg has basically everything else over him? So Federer was 68-9 this year, eight titles, three slams, all four slam finals, an incredible, incredible season. But it doesn't make the cut because over four tournaments, lost twice to Guillermo Cañas and another to Filippo Volandri. 18-4 and four versus the top 10, though. 3-2 and two versus Nadal. 3-1 and one versus an upcoming Djokovic who cracked the top 10 this season and ended up finishing at number 3. And 3-0 three and oh versus Roddick. Then we have 2004 Federer, which I would imagine is probably the most surprising omission from this list to most people. He was 74-6, and six, won 11 titles, 3 slams, the year-end title, and 3 masters. But let's look at the top 10 to start this season because this is, this is the most ridiculous of any on this list. Andy Roddick, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Andre Agassi, who was older at this point, Coria, Rainer Schuttler, Moya, now Bandian, Philippusis, and Sebastian Grosjean. So he's undefeated versus the top 10, which sounds great, but consider that that's the top 10. Here are his 16 top 10 wins. Ferrero, 34-year-old Agassi twice, Coria, Roddick three times, Hewitt four times, Safin, Moya, Gaudio, Henman, and Albandian. Most of those guys are not legitimate top 10 guys. And I'm going to continue to show how easy this route was for him because I think that it's important that I defend leaving this one off the list. And the Australian in Wimbledon, he didn't play a top 100 player until the round of 16 either time. The U.S. Open semis beat Henman, finals beat Hewitt, Wimbledon, semis Grosjean, finals Roddick, Australian, semis Ferrero, and then 86 Safin. So, yeah, those are some very good players. Again, it's weird when you don't have that generational contender, when you don't have a McEnroe or a Connors or a Peak Agassi or even an Edberg or a Becker. None of these guys are on that tier. None of them are on that tier. So it's a little bit strange in that sense. And then the French in the third round lost to Querton, which is not great when you don't even make the quarters of all four slams. Had some bad losses too, four to guys outside the top 30. Yes, one of those is to a very young Rafa Nadal and another is to Guga and Clay, as I just mentioned. So... I guess that you can maybe say that those aren't typical losses to guys outside the top 30, but I would still argue that he had some bad losses this year. And when you're talking about this elite, elite level of seasons that we're looking at here, we're nitpicking. And so that's why I have to leave this one off. Some other notable honorable mentions. Now we're into the Yvonne Lendl swing because on paper, Lendl had a few seasons that really contended for this list. 85 goes 84 and 7, 11 titles, three finals, 21 and 4 versus top 10 opponents. This is insane. 5 and 0 versus Connors, 4 and 0 versus Becker, 3 and 2 versus Mack, 3 and 1 versus Vlander, beats Connors and McEnroe to win the US Open. But he only won one slam this year, made the finals at the French, round of 16 at Wimbledon, and the semis at the Australian. And there is no way. I'm going to put uh, a season with only one slam on the top 10 of this list. Lendl in 82 has a similar dilemma. 106 and 9, 15 titles. Ridiculous when you look at those two. But there's no way I'm putting this in. I won't even consider it because he lost round of 16 at the French, finals of the US Open, and he didn't even play the other two. And again, tennis is about the grand slams above all else. 
Yes, there are seasons that are better than others, even if you win less slams. But if you win no slams, you're not cracking the top 10. Lendl in 86, 74 and 6, 9 titles, 14 and 5 versus the top 10. And this one probably ends up being the closest. He's 3 and 0 versus Connors, 2 and 3 versus Becker, 2 and 1 versus Edberg, 2 and 0 versus Vlander. Didn't play the Australian, won the French and the US Open, made the finals at Wimbledon. So it's definitely the closest, but an easy route overall. U.S. Open, Lacan and Edberg were his toughest opponents, faced world number 15 Miloslav Meshir in the final, but he only lost one set all tournament in the quarters to Lacan, and only five sets even went past 6-3. So that is a very dominant tournament from him. Roland Garros didn't play a single top 10 opponent, but only three sets went past 6-3. He beat 27 Perfnors. I don't even know how to say that name. I'll be honest, that's before my time in the finals. So incredibly dominant in those two, but didn't face any legit competition for the most part. And then Wimbledon, an easy route again, beat the world number 61, 81, 94, 29, 12, and 36, barely escaped in the quarters and semis where he won 9-7 and 6-4 in the fifth. And then he lost a three in Becker. So this is a weird season because he was incredibly dominant across the slams overall. He had a really an all-time great season. And I said earlier that this is probably the closest one for Lendl. This is definitely the closest one for Lendl. But when I'm comparing it to Borg, who basically did the same thing, making all three finals, didn't lose a, a set at the French, and he had to do it against stronger competition, I'm going to give the edge to him. Also, when you look at the fact that Lendl had a losing record versus Becker, I don't know. This just doesn't quite feel deserving to me. It was in a bit of a transitional period when Becker and Edberg are just coming up and McEnroe has gone away, and Connors is really starting to fade. So close, but no cigar for Lendl. Another honorable mention I have is 1977 Guillermo Vilas. I mentioned this season earlier. He was 136-14. and 14. That's a 90.7% winning percentage. 16 titles, the second most ever. 46 straight wins, the third longest streak ever. Seven straight titles. Made the finals at the Australian. Won the French. Third round Wimbledon. Won the U.S. Open. 2-0 versus Connors. 0-3 versus Borg is a little unsettling. There were just a few too many losses for Vilas in this season. He still wasn't even the consensus top guy. Connors finished the year at number one. Borg was really dominant in his own right. So there's a few too many losses. It's a bit too imperfect. And a lot of his wins came against not the best competition. So that's why I have to leave this one off just a bit. 2010 Nadal, he was 71 and 10, seven titles, three slams and a quarterfinal appearance in the Australian. Just five and three versus the rest of the big four. And there were some bad losses. He was only 11 and five versus the top 10, only seven titles. Doesn't really compare to this list. So that's an incredible season. Uh, it's the greatest season of Nadal's career without a doubt to me when he was able to achieve winning all or not all three, but three slams. But it's not quite going to crack the top 10. And then the last one I feel like I have to acknowledge is 88 V Launder only because he won three slams. He was 53 and 11 overall and only six titles. Some others that would probably be considered, I don't know, 82 Connors is a signature season because he won two slams, but he didn't quite have the consistency. I looked through all the Sampras seasons and I couldn't really make a strong case for any of them. So, and then again, you know, there are great pre-open era seasons, but those don't qualify for this list. So that's going to wrap things up. We are probably going to continue to look back at history here on down the line as we continue this drought of live sports and live tennis. It's dark times. Wimbledon is canceled and we're going to have to settle in for three months or so without tennis. But luckily, this is a sport with 
a long and storied history that I am more than willing to explore with you all. So I've been Carson Breber. Hope you've enjoyed listening. This was Down the Line. <laughs>